From the newsroom of Impact Alpha, I'm Monique Aiken, and this is your Impact Briefing for Friday, October 6th. Today, I'm joined by Raraj Pradhananga and Jane Swan of Veris Wealth Partners to talk about investing after affirmative action and how the wealth manager is rethinking due diligence to advance gender and racial justice. But first, here's what you need to know from the week in Impact Investing. Impact investors gathered across the globe in Copenhagen, Malaga, and Tokyo. The gatherings brought together investors looking to raise funds, pursue partnerships, and grapple with mounting challenges. In Copenhagen, the Global Impact Investing Network's Amit Bori said, quote, Navigating these challenges require the ambition to envision and lead monumental change and the humility to recognize the vastness of our journey ahead. Bill Burkhart, my colleague at TIP, was in Tokyo where signatories to the UNPRI met. He reports in Impact Alpha that Japan is truly taking a systems-level approach. Prime Minister Fumio Kishida announced 20 trillion yen, or $130 billion, in climate transition bonds. In October's list of impact funds currently raising, Indigenous North American and women-led funds are seeking opportunities in climate and creativity. Bloom Equity's all-women founding team has the largest fundraising target this month. They're looking to raise 200 million euro to fill a growth stage funding gap for Europe's climate tech investors. Impact Alpha's reporting on open impact funds is now available as a searchable discovery tool. The subscriber-only database includes more than 80 impact funds that have been actively raising capital in the last year. On this week's Plugged In Call, Sherelle Dorsey spoke with Olivia Watkins of Black Farmer Fund. The fund provides flexible capital to farmers and food entrepreneurs in the Northeastern United States with the aim of redressing the discriminatory and predatory lending practices that have inhibited Black farmers and land stewards in the past. And Germany's Traceless Materials raised $36 million to develop their alternative to petroleum plastic. The Hamburg-based company has developed a bio-based, low-emission plastic alternative made from agricultural waste, such as rice and straw. So Raraj, Jane, Veriswolf Partners is a longtime impact investor. Tell us a little bit more about the firm and its approach before we get into this recent report you all just published. Veris was founded as a wealth management firm entirely focused on impact in 2007. Through these uh, 15 plus years, we have really tailored our work towards the client universe that really is interested in accessing impact opportunities through their investments. So we're duly focused on performance outcomes as well as positive impact. Historically, the the industry and certainly our firm has been really diligent and innovative in areas of environmental conservation. And I think that uh, client demand and, and really the particular clients that we work with in recent years have elevated a deep interest in having greater alignment between their portfolios and the other set of their values, which really encompasses gender and racial equity. We have a lot of clients that um, that their entire financial life revolves around inherited wealth. And many of these clients have become very aware of the paradox between their existence as inheritors and their values around social justice and income and wealth inequality. 
And so really over the last five years, our firm has taken many steps to really figure out ways where we could innovate, evaluate, and activate around the um, strategies to really wrap these two paradoxes together, inherited wealth alongside an interest in mitigating economic injustice. So that, that brings us to really where we are today. I think one thing I will add is, uh, you know, Veris as a majority women-owned and women-led firm uh, has been a pioneer in gender lens investing. Uh, we started doing gender lens investing in, in early 2010s. And uh, while social justice was one of our other major themes, uh, in 2020, what we did was we combined our gender lens investing and social justice approach to uh, focus on what we now call racial and gender equity, which is one of our four major themes at the firm. Well, equity has been a lot in the news lately, and for good reason. I mean, the Supreme Court ruling on affirmative action really sort of activate a lot of things on either side of the support or against. Um, we've seen very intentional political efforts, of course, to push back on diversity in many aspects of society and particularly investing. The lawsuit for, against the Fairless Fund case in point. Um, and my colleagues, Bill Burkhart from TIP and Technesia Boye-Robinson from CAPIQ, Mahalet Getachew of PolicyLink, we all co-wrote an op-ed this week in Impact Alpha that highlighted the systemic risks that in inequity poses to investors, and as well as ways that investors can help mitigate those losses. We also had a report on racial inequity from earlier this year. And in your report, you and your co-authors talk about your approach. Uh, I think it was called Investing in Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging. And you quote Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson a few times in that piece. Can you share with our audience who may not have read it yet, how Varys thinks about racial equity in general and how intersectionality plays in, maybe? Yeah, so if you look at the history of the United States and you look at the, uh, the systemic barriers and policies that have been in place for hundreds of years that have prevented communities of color, particularly starting with Black Americans and indigenous communities, all the way to now recent uh, immigrants to the U.S., particularly from Asia and also parts of Latin America today, uh, there has been barriers in terms of uh, wealth creation, access to capital, being part of civil society, being part of decision making, whether it's policy or investments. Uh, and also, as we think uh, as, a, as a wealth management firm and what we are trying to accomplish in client portfolios, um, you know, with the dual mandate that Jane talked about, I think it's very important that as we look at our thematic approach, that racial and gender equity or community wealth building or uh, climate solutions or regenerative agriculture, they're all intersectional approach, right? You cannot look at one theme and ignore the other. Uh, that intersectionality, as we look at it, and one of the areas that we focus on at the firm is climate justice. And as we look for investable opportunities for our client portfolios across asset classes, we look at these thematic approaches and, and then identify uh, investable uh, products in you know, various asset classes from public markets and public equities, fixed income, all the way to private markets and private equity, venture capital, real asset uh, uh, in forestry, uh, sustainable forestry, but also really looking at CDFIs, community development financial institutions. 
that I would say are at the forefront of really helping these uh, low and moderate income communities and communities of color providing you know, services which have historically been unavailable to these under-resourced communities. So in the report, you mentioned having developed your own equity, diversity, inclusion framework that you refer to as EDI. Can you say more about that and how does it actually work in practice? So when we first launched the idea of developing this framework four years ago, we really had no idea what our own data would lead us to as far as the diversity within the managers that already we cover. And so as we embarked on the process of collecting data and developing this framework, we, from the get-go, built out a variety of categories that we thought were likely to be suitable in really identifying the various managers on our platform and in our pipeline. And so we started with really a, a clear idea of what would be what we then learned to call an EDI manager. And that is a, a firm where both the firm itself, meaning the people of the firm at all levels from ownership, investment process, um, through all of the decision makers and, and workers within the firm, meet criteria that we set around gender and racial diversity. An EDI manager in our framework also would have EDI really integrated in their investment process. So they would be taking considerations um, of the, the underlying investments that in, within the strategy. We then also recognize that that does break out two subsets and a firm might qualify for one and not the other. And so we split out a stepping zone to that ultimate uh, designation, which it includes two pieces, EDI firm and then EDI investment process, really segregating and allowing correct attribution to firms that had achieved one but not both of those categories. We also recognize that particularly around areas like staffing and ownership, this process for many firms is gonna take a long time to achieve their target and the targets that we've set around diversification of the team. And so we also developed a category called EDI aspirational, where we're recognizing firms that are actively taking steps to achieve both EDI firm categorization as well as EDI investment process. And then finally, we needed a place for firms that weren't falling anywhere else on the list. And really where we were um, wanted to make clear in the title that we didn't find their, their enhancements around EDI issues to be sufficient. And so we have our EDI watch list. And those are for firms that don't qualify on any of the other types of categories. Maybe I'll just go back a little bit and in terms of historical context, right? Veris uh, has been collecting data on diversity of managers. I would say starting 2016, 2017 is when we started collecting that data. And a lot of the data was really used for internal purposes and, and reporting to clients, right? But that was it. Uh, and also, you know, as we uh, as we look at some of the events that took place, especially 2020, the murder of George Floyd, a lot of uh, companies started making 
uh, DEI commitments, right? And including all the managers that we worked with. Uh, and so we wanted to understand what are they doing uh, and how does this lead to positive change? We didn't want it to be check the box exercise. We wanted it to have actual outcomes. Um, and, and, and because of that reason, uh, we, we went a step further than what the industry was doing at that point in time, which was really focusing on diversity uh, at senior management or board level, right? We wanted to go beyond that. And this is what Jane was referring to, especially adding on to that investment process, uh, looking at portfolio companies, looking at the second and third degree of impact, uh, and really ensuring that we are seeing change, uh, especially uh, you know, when it comes to products and services and, and communities uh, that, 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 that would be impacted by uh, all these commitments. Well, we know that the pipeline for a lot of managers is investment banking or careers that work with the feeders to these organizations, which are not particularly diverse. So, you know, just a question, you know, what, what did you find when you looked at the data? And um, if there are Black, Indigenous, and other people of color-led firms listening, how can they find you since it says in the report that you're interested in sourcing more of such managers? Yeah. No, so it is definitely a challenge in the industry. If you really look at uh, the number of um, fund managers that are owned and led by people of color or women, right? It's, it, that number is very limited, uh, and and that was obvious to us from 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 the very beginning. Um, so we, what we had to do and what we did was we ha- we reached out to our managers that we worked with. We've, you know, we, we, we attended a lot of impact investing conferences, really with the, with the intentionality of identifying these diverse managers, right? But also our clients are also a, uh, are a resource when it comes to identifying investable opportunities. So, uh, and also our colleagues and, and our peers in the industry. Right. There are many organizations and even Impact Alpha, uh, you are your perfect example of what you have done in terms of uh, 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 providing a resource for wealth managers, for asset owners to understand who all are out there fundraising, especially diverse managers. So there are resources out there in terms of reaching out to firms like Veris, uh, you know, most of the firms would have a contact base, reach out to them. But we have a lot of information about our DIV investing approach, uh, what we are looking for, and how we allocate to, to client portfolios. You can reach out to us directly, uh, but also you know, being in the, in the ecosystem, being in the network is also very critical. But there are uh, 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 networks like Impact Capital Managers out there who are also doing a phenomenal job in terms of highlighting these diverse managers. Great. So has the EDI framework helped you spot mispriced risk or overlooked opportunities? Yeah. Uh, so uh, what I will say there is, and Jane, please feel free to chime in here. Um, as we looked at our you know, approved list of managers, uh, what it has given us insights on is that we have, as a firm, despite our commitment and despite our intentionality, we have a long ways to go when it comes to investing with a DEIB lens. Uh, you know, in our report, we talk about how 32% of our managers today have an EDI investment process and 13% are EDI managers, right? And there's plenty of research out there that shows uh, that diverse teams are better at identifying risk and opportunities, 
right? And as we think about that and the implications on 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 performance, implications on the type of companies that they invest in, uh, we see that when we look at the impact outcomes, when we look at the impact metrics, when we look at their impact reports, uh, and and their financial reports, right? So we we are seeing that in the in the in in the reporting aspect of it. Um, I think w- what is missing still is really understanding. Uh, the the actual outcomes in communities. I think that we are we are far uh, you know uh, from from where we need to be, uh, but also in terms of uh, risks, right? I mean, uh, not every manager out there is going to be an EDI manager or EDI investment process. Uh, it will take time. It will. I think the biggest thing is it will take time, given the structural barriers that we still have in the financial services industry, uh, and and that uh, risk is something that we need to tackle, we need to focus on, we need to be intentional about. Uh, and and that, that is the insight that we have gotten from our EDI manager framework as we do the due diligence, sort of understanding what are the barriers for our uh, asset managers to get to EDI manager or EDI investment process. But at the same time, the opportunities are uh, immense. So uh, one of the best things that have come out of this is what are the best practices that our managers are implementing in their, uh, in the, in their firms? And it's a great learning opportunity uh, for for Veris because we are implementing some of those best practices at our firm, but also sharing the uh, all, all of these best practices with our asset managers uh, and having conversations, engaging with them. One of the biggest, uh, I would say, aspect of our EDI due, due diligence process is engagement, and that, that is engaging with our asset managers on what exactly are they doing on EDI topics, and 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 that that is yielding results because you can see. Even uh, you know tangible information like diversity metrics, we are seeing diversity metrics improve year over year. I just one other piece to add. I think along with evaluating and growing the uh, diversity of our pipeline, it's important for us and for our industry to really look at not just what managers are we adding to our approved list, but what assets are we putting with those managers. Being on our approved list doesn't it requires a great deal of effort and work answering hundreds of questions from Raraj and his team. And if that then leads to one client and one deposit, one investment and one set of fees, we are actually harming the managers that we're really aiming to uh, create opportunities for and include in, in the marketplace. And so as we think about different strategies and and firms to add to our pipeline, we really need to be uh, growing our own articulation and how we talk to clients and how we position these strategies to be sure that an AUM follows the the significant efforts that managers are, are making to be on our list and so many other lists. We've heard from many, many firms that they are that following 2020 and all of these commitments that Raraj referenced, the action of asset motion hasn't followed. And so we need to hold ourselves accountable. And we, I think, in the industry need to be more accountable to the outcomes that are attached to the effort of diversifying our approved list. Well, as they say, sunlight is the best medicine, but it also takes courage to admit what is, especially when what is may not 
painting you in the best light. And so I want to commend you all for your vulnerability and being able to share some of just the process and willingness to journey out loud, because also you mentioned in the report that your own organization falls short of that, the criteria you developed yourself. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about your decision to include that in the report? And was there any hesitation on, on behalf of the firm in doing so? Uh, I, I think that um, had we not acknowledged our own deficiencies, um, I, I certainly wouldn't have put my name on the report. I, I, I don't think it would have had legitimacy. I think that if we are out in the industry pointing fingers and oblivious to what's happening within our own firm, we do more harm to our reputation than good. And I think that as, um, as Raraj has mentioned, having that accountability, having the internal reference point, and really working with many of the managers that are within our network around best practices, that has helped us to really see some of the limitations and, and some of the, the um, areas where intent may actually interfere with outcome. And so we are looking to be more honest with ourselves, more honest with our employees around career development, around opportunities for advancement, and, and really things like feedback, making sure that I think you know, we recognize that there's a tendency for, um, for folks to be a bit paternalistic in limiting career advancement and, and uh, coaching when speaking to women and people of color. And so we really want to look at how we speak internally, how we talk to our staff, how we develop, and how we provide opportunities for retention, advancement, and so forth. Because I think that is our best opportunity to work towards curing the deficiencies uh, that we see in our own firm. Well, I'm, I, for one, I'm here for all of it, and I'm a big fan of Varys, as you all know personally. But thank you so much for joining me today. A huge thank you to Impact Alpha and to, to your audience. Yeah, no, th thank you, Monique, for having us. Uh, we are big fans of Impact Alpha, especially in terms of how you have democratized the access to information around impact investing. Uh, it's going back to 2019. Uh, there was lack of information around uh, impact investing opportunities, products, and you know, products out there. And you have made such a big difference over the years. So thank you for all you do. And that's going to do it for this week's Impact Briefing. Thanks to Raraj, Jane, and our producer, Isaac Silk. Sign up for Impact Alpha Open, our free weekly newsletter, directly at impactalpha.com. Or become a subscriber to get full access to our award-winning daily coverage in impact investing and sustainable finance. Just go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe. Thank you for listening. I'm Monique Aiken, Managing Director for TIP, the Investment Integration Project. Be sure to check back for next week's briefing. And until then, take care.